the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't think that it's this way anymore, but it used to be in Montana that there was no speed limit on the interstates. Anybody remember back that far? That was cool. I think, in the, I think in Germany, the Autobahn still doesn't have, does it? I don't think that has a speed limit either. And I always thought that was so neat, you know, that, that freedom to just burn it out, do whatever you want. I thought that was great. And yet, freedom always implies responsibility. And if people are not responsible with the freedoms they have, that's how laws get made. So we have to remember that our freedom in Christ also has some responsibility as well. Martin Luther looked at that. He was all excited about the freedom of the gospel that he found reading in the book of Romans, the book of John. And then he discovered that when people heard sometimes they were free in Christ, they thought that meant, you know, anarchy. We can do any darn thing we feel like. We don't have to worry about other people or, you know, what happens to them. And he had to caution them about that. In our epistle lesson for today, the second lesson, 1 Corinthians, St. Paul is advising the folks at Corinth, the congregation there, about the freedom in Christ that they have too. And it's, it's under the heading of concerning food offered to idols. Now, if you don't know the background of this or the culture, this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, so let me fill you in a little bit on that. This is Corinth, of course, is in Greece. And the Greeks had a pagan god for everything. They had a pagan god for the sun, the moon, the stars, the wind, the trees, the rocks, war, peace, love, fertility. They, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting a pagan temple over there in Corinth. They just had all kinds of them, and pagan priests in them too. And the issue was that people would bring meat offerings to all these different pagan temples. And the pagan priests would take a little bit of it, and would burn it as a sacrifice and take the rest of it and then sell it. And that's how they supported That was one of the ways they supported the pagan temples and the, and the pagan priests. So the upshot was that the majority of the meat that you could get in the marketplace had already been ceremonially offered to a pagan god. Now, the problem came in that there were some Christians at Corinth who were new, new Christians. There were some who'd been around a little bit. And the new Christians were horribly offended to think that anybody would eat meat that had been sacrificed to a pagan god. They were Christians now. They don't want anything to do with pagan stuff. So then when they saw some of the other folks who'd been around a while eating some of this meat, they thought, what the heck? Are they, don't, they, don't they love the Lord Jesus? Don't, don't they believe? Is it all fake? What's going on here? Their faith was really shaken by that. So St. Paul is writing to these, he calls them the weak and the strong. Probably a better term would be the uninformed and the informed. And he writes to those who are kind of informed, who've been around a little while, and he says, I know that you are right. You're right. It doesn't make any difference what some pagan priest, what mumbo-jumbo they said over top of this this meat, and it was uh, because these gods aren't real. None of it's real, so it doesn't make any difference. I know, I know, you're right. You're absolutely right on that. It doesn't make any difference. However, what does make a difference is what you were doing to damage the faith of those new members of the congregation. So eating of the meat isn't a sin, but burdening somebody else's conscience and causing them to sin, that's a sin. So, 
they had to resolve that issue. Now, this is the same kinds of things still go on today. Uh, I'll use one example from the, from the past. Um, Lutherans have knowledge, and we know that the Greek word in the New Testament and the words of institution is oinos, which translates to wine. So we have wine for Holy Communion because it says wine. And we Lutherans always try to stick as closely as we can to what scriptures actually say. However, I'm not going to say anything to my Reformed brothers and sisters, members of the Baptist, uh, Church of God, Methodist, whatever other Protestant domina- denominations. I'm not going to say anything to them if they want to use uh, only uh, non-alcoholic fruit of the vine because they have a long history with you know, uh, looking out for people with problems with alcohol. So I'm not going to say anything to them about that and burden their conscience. Oh, oh, it says wine. Come on, come on, everybody. Join on the wine bandwagon here. And we have grape juice in our congregations out of pastoral concern for those people who either don't want to or aren't good at handling alcohol. Or maybe you know what your family history is and you don't think it's a good idea to try. That's, that's great. That's a great reason. But what I'm saying is, just because we have knowledge in this area, what the actual word is, that doesn't mean we have to ram it down everybody else's throat. And I've been thinking about this, and I thought, you know, at Jesus' time, the Middle Eastern people to this day have good tolerance of alcohol. You you never hear Jesus talking about alcoholism because they really didn't have it. Genetically, they were good with that. But the other thing was, they didn't have refrigeration. So the only way you could keep fruit of the vine around for any length of time was to ferment it, and you could keep it indefinitely. And I thought to myself, what if Jesus' first parish was in Jamestown, North Dakota, where I used to be, and he, had, and he lived pretty close to the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And, of course, Native Americans have no tolerance for alcohol whatsoever genetically. What if he lived there? I wonder if the words of institution would have come out differently. <laughs> I don't know. That's a, a kind of a moot point, but... Anyway, I don't think that just because we have knowledge in an area, we we ram that down everybody else's throat. Here's an issue that's current in our congregation. Our uh, safety and security committee uh, are doing what they can to safeguard us against various things. We've got the AED, the defibrillator out there. We've got medical stuff. We've got uh, plans for storms or fires and things like that. Well, the next thing on the list for safety and security is, is active shooter. And as if you've watched the news at all in the last few years, you know that churches and to a second degree schools seem to be the big popular target for uh, automatic wielding wackos to come in and shoot a whole bunch of people. So this is a real thing. We know this is a real thing. And so the committee uh, and, and the council has been kind of struggling with this. Now, in our congregation, we have opinions that range all the way from Let's not do a thing, let's take a chance, and if they come in and shoot us, we go to heaven quicker, so okay. Two, let's have armed guards in the, in the parking lot. And my financial guy said that he's a member of a, a, big, uh, a big non-denominational church in Fort Wayne, and that's what they have up there. They have armed, armed uh, guards in the parking lot. Okay, so we've got all the way from nothing to that and, and everything in between. You know, just locking doors at certain times, doing you know, being on the lookout, doing whatever. Okay, I don't care what we decide to do ultimately. What I care about is how we decide it. Okay, 
Does everybody get a say? Do we discuss things? Do we use the wisdom of many, the wise counsel of many? And do we treat everybody's notion with respect and try to come up with something that people can live with that's a consensus? I'm concerned with how, not what. I really don't care. But how we do it, that's important. And that, you know, whatever knowledge we might have, St. Paul says, knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. That's what we want to go under in our congregation. And so we always have responsibility with our freedom in Christ. I'll give you another example. I've used this example in a different connection before, but it works for this too. When I was in prep school, I went to Concordia, Milwaukee. It was in another state from, from where I was. It was not like around the corner. And so when I came home in the summer, after I well, you know, had my driver's license and so forth, my dad said, sat me down and he said to me, okay, we're not going to give you any curfew over the summer because you have to make your own decisions nine months out of the year. You have to be responsible and know what you're doing nine months out of the year because you're in another state and we're not there to see you. So we're not going to lay something on you for three months in the summer. You can come home anytime you want. However, just remember that you are responsible for a lot of people. You need to get up every morning having had a good night's sleep and be refreshed and awake because you are a lifeguard and people are trusting their children to you. And you would feel horrible if you were half asleep and somebody drowned. You'd feel bad if you were awake and somebody drowned, but you'd, be, you'd have real trouble forgiving yourself, he said, if, that, if you knew you hadn't done your best job. You need to be awake and alert every day. And secondly, he said, your mother, you know, can't fully fall asleep until she hears that door close, front door. And if she doesn't fall asleep, she doesn't get enough sleep, and she's cranky. And I don't want to live with a cranky woman. So now you can come in whatever you want. Well, crap, just tell me midnight and leave it go at that. I, you know. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was free. I was free. Yeah. And yet my responsibilities made me make decisions that would be responsible. Okay? That's who we are. So I'll give you an example with uh, husbands and wives. Sometimes, if you're a married person, sometimes you have disagreements. Some might even call them arguments. And when that happens, sometimes husbands know that they're right. And they actually are right some, some of these times. And so they insist on being right, extremely right. And sometimes we're so extremely right, we end up on the couch overnight. And, but here's what I've discovered, that even if I have knowledge about something, uh, what I've discovered works really well with Deborah is if I say, you know, I could be wrong. That one usually shuts off the argument. Another one that I've used that works really well is to say, you know, you might be right. But what I don't want to add in, okay, I got you. I don't, don't, don't jump up, Deborah. I know how you are. 
But what I try not to add in, unless I'm really kidding, is to say, you know, Deborah, you might be right. You were that one other time. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I say that, that kind of takes away with one hand what the other hand just gave. So, yeah, I just say that when I'm kidding. Uh, but that will work. <laughs> I knew you couldn't stay out of this. Uh, so, anyway... Uh, we, we, just because we have knowledge about something, oh, okay, that's fine. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So if I wanted to summarize what St. Paul was saying to the Corinthians, the Christians there, and to us, I think I can do it in three words. Love trumps knowledge. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.